Part twelve of the Lady of the Shrub by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Part twelve. Book seven. The Empire of the Air. From the Report of Christophorus, War Scribe to the National Council. July seventh, nineteen o seven. When the Gospodar Rupert and Captain Rook came within hailing distance of the strange ship, the former hailed her using one after another the languages of England, Germany, France, Russia, Turkey, Greece, Spain, Portugal, and another which I did not know. I think it must have been American. By this time, the whole line of the bulwark was covered by a row of Turkish faces. When, in Turkish, the Gospodar asked for the captain, the latter came to the gangway, which had been opened, and stood there. His uniform was that of the Turkish navy, of that I am prepared to swear, but he made signs of not understanding what had been said, whereupon the Vespadar spoke again, but in French this time. I append the exact conversation which took place, none other joining in it. I took down in shorthand the words of both as they were spoken. The Gospodar, are you the captain of this ship? The captain, I am. Gospodar, to what nationality do you belong? Captain, it matters not. I am captain of this ship. Gospodar, I alluded to your ship. What national flag is she under? Captain, throwing his eye over the top hamper. I do not see that any flag is flying. Gospodar, I take it that as commander you can allow me on board with my two companions? Captain, I can, upon proper request being made. Gospodar, taking off his cap. I ask your courtesy, Captain. I am the representative and accredited officer of the National Council of the Land of the Blue Mountains, in whose waters you now are, and on their account I ask for a formal interview on urgent matters. The Turk, who was, I am bound to say, in manner most courteous as yet, gave some command to his officers, whereupon the companion ladders and stage were lowered, and the gangway manned, as is usual for the reception on a ship of war of an honoured guest. Captain, you are welcome, sir you and your two companions, as you request. The Gospodar bowed. Our companion ladder was rigged on the instant, and a launch lowered. The Gospodar and Captain Rope, taking me with them, entered and rode to the warship, where we were all honorably received. There were an immense number of men on board, soldiers as well as seamen. It looked more like a warlike expedition than a fighting ship in time of peace. As we stepped on the deck, the seamen and marines, who were all armed as at drill, presented arms. The Gospodar went first towards the captain, and Captain Rook and I followed close behind him. The Gospodar spoke. I am Rupert St. Ledger, a subject of his Britannic Majesty, presently residing at Vissarion in the land of the Blue Mountains. I am at present empowered to act for the National Council in all matters. Here is my credential. As he spoke, he handed to the captain a letter. It was written in five different languages, Balkan, Turkish, Greek, English, and French. The captain read it carefully all through, forgetful for the moment that he had seemingly been unable to understand the Gospodar's question spoken in the Turkish tongue. Then he answered, I see the document is complete. May I ask on what subject you wish to see me? Gospodar. You are here in a ship of war in Blue Mountain waters, yet you fly no flag of any nation. You have sent armed men ashore in your boats, thus committing an act of war. 
the National Council of the Land of the Blue Mountains requires to know what nation you serve and why the obligations of international law are thus broken. The captain seemed to wait for further speech, but the Gospodar remained silent, whereupon the former spoke. Captain, I am responsible to my own chiefs. I refuse to answer your question. The Gospodar spoke at once in reply. Gospodar, then, sir, you, as commander of a ship, and especially a ship of war, must know that, in thus violating national and maritime laws, you and all on board this ship are guilty of an act of piracy. This is not even piracy on the high seas. You are not merely within territorial waters, but you have invaded a national port. As you refuse to disclose the nationality of your ship, I accept, as you seem to do, your status as that of a pirate and shall in due season act accordingly. Captain, with manifest hostility, I accept the responsibility of my own acts. Without admitting your contention, I tell you now that whatever action you take shall be at your own peril and that of your national council. Moreover, I have reason to believe that my men who were sent ashore on special service have been beleaguered in a tower which can be seen from this ship. Before dawn this morning, Firing was heard from that direction, from which I gathered that attack was made on them. They, being only a small party, may have been murdered. If such be so, I tell you that you and your miserable little nation, as you call it, shall pay such blood money as you never thought of. I am responsible for this, and by Allah there shall be a great revenge. You have not in all your navy, if navy you have at all, power to cope with even one ship like this, which is but one of many. My guns shall be trained on Ilsen, to which end I have come in shore. You and your companions have free conduct back to port, such is due to the white flag which you fly. Fifteen minutes will bring you back whence you came. Go, and remember that whatever you may do amongst your mountain defiles, at sea you cannot even defend yourselves. Gospodar slowly and in a ringing voice. The land of the Blue Mountains has its own defenses on sea and land. Its people know how to defend themselves. Captain, taking out his watch. It is now close on five bells. At the first stroke of six bells, our guns shall open fire. Gospodar, calmly. It is my last duty to warn you, sir, and to warn all on this ship that much may happen before even the first stroke of six bells. Be warned in time, and give over this piratical attack, the very threat of which may be the cause of much bloodshed. Captain, violently, Do you dare to threaten me, and moreover my ship's company? We are one, I tell you, in this ship, and the last man shall perish like the first, ere this enterprise fail. Go! With a bow, the Gospodar turned and went down the ladder, we following him. In a couple of minutes, the yacht was on her way to the port. From Rupert's Journal, July 10th, 1907. When we turned shoreward after my stormy interview with the pirate captain, I can call him nothing else at present, Rook gave orders to a quartermaster on the bridge, and the lady began to make to a little northward of Ilson Port. Rook himself went aft to the wheelhouse, taking several men with him. 
When we were quite near the rocks, the water is so deep here that there is no danger, we slowed down, merely drifting along southwards towards the port. I was myself on the bridge and could see all over the decks. I could also see preparations going on upon the warship. Ports were opened and the great guns on the turrets were lowered for action. When we were starboard broadside onto the ship, I saw the port side of the steering house open and Rook's men sliding out what looked like a huge gray crab, which by tackle from within the wheelhouse was lowered softly into the sea. The position of the yacht hid the operation from sight of the warship. The doors were shut again and the yacht's pace began to quicken. We ran into the port. I had a vague idea that Rook had some desperate project on hand. Not for nothing had he kept the wheelhouse locked on that mysterious crab. All along the frontage was a great crowd of eager men. But they had considerably left the little mole at the southern entrance, whereon was a little tower on whose round top a signal gun was placed, free for my own use. When I was landed on this pier, I went along to the end, and climbing the narrow stair within, went out on the sloping roof. I stood up for I was determined to show the Turks that I was not afraid for myself, as they would understand when the bombardment should begin. It was now but a very few minutes before the fatal hour, six bells. But all the same I was almost in a state of despair. It was terrible to think of all those poor souls in the town who had done nothing wrong and who were to be wiped out in the coming bloodthirsty wanton attack. I raised my glasses to see how preparations were going on upon the warship. As I looked, I had a momentary fear that my eyesight was giving way. At one moment I had the deck of the warship focused with my glasses, and could see every detail as the gunners waited for the word to begin the bombardment with the great guns of the barbettes. The next I saw nothing but the empty sea. Then in another instant there was the ship as before, but the details were blurred. I steadied myself against the signal gun and looked again. Not more than two or at the most three seconds had elapsed. The ship was, for the moment, full in view. As I looked, she gave a queer kind of quick shiver, prow and stern, and then sideways. It was for all the world like a rat shaken in the mouth of a skilled terrier. Then she remained still, the one placid thing to be seen, for all around her the sea seemed to shiver in little independent eddies, as when water is broken without a current to guide it. I continued to look, and when the deck was, or seemed, quite still, for the shivering water round the ship kept catching my eyes through the outer rays of the lenses, I noticed that nothing was stirring. The men who had been at the guns were all lying down. The men in the fighting tops had leaned forward or backward, and their arms hung down helplessly. Everywhere was desolation, insofar as life was concerned. Even a little brown bear, which had been seated on the cannon, which was being put into range position, had jumped or fallen on deck, and lay there stretched out and still. It was evident that some terrible shock had been given to the mighty war vessel. Without a doubt or a thought why I did so, I turned my eyes towards where the lady lay, port broadside now to the inside in the harbour mouth. I had the key now to the mystery of Rook's proceedings with the great grey crab. As I looked, I saw just outside the harbour a thin line of cleaving water. This became more marked each instant. 
till a steel disc with glass eyes that shone in the light of the sun rose above the water. It was about the size of a beehive and was shaped like one. It made a straight line for the aft of the yacht. At the same moment, in obedience to some command, given so quietly that I did not hear it, the men went below, all save some few who began to open out doors in the port side of the wheelhouse. The tackle was run out through an opened gangway on that side, and a man stood on the great hook at the lower end, balancing himself by hanging on the chain. In a few seconds he came up again. The chain tightened, and the great grey crab rose over the edge of the deck, and was drawn into the wheelhouse, the doors of which were closed, shutting in a few only of the men. I waited, quite quiet. After a space of a few minutes, Captain Rooke, in his uniform, walked out of the wheelhouse. He entered a small boat, which had been in the meantime lowered for the purpose, and was rowed to the steps on the mole. Ascending these, he came directly towards the signal tower. When he had ascended and stood beside me, he saluted. Well? I asked. All well, sir, he answered. We shan't have any more trouble with that lot, I think. You warned that pirate... I wish he had been, of truth, a clean, honest, straightforward pirate, instead of the measly Turkish swab he was, that something might occur before the first stroke of six bells. Well, something has occurred, and for him and all his crew, that six bells will never sound. So the Lord fights for the cross against the crescent. Bismillah. Amen. He said this in a manifestly formal way, as though declaiming a ritual. The next instant he went on in the thoroughly practical conventional way which was usual to him. May I ask a favor, Mr. St. Ledger? A thousand, my dear Rook, I said. You can't ask me anything which I shall not freely grant, and I speak within my brief from the National Council. You have saved Ilson this day, and the Council will thank you for it in due time. Me, sir, he said, with a look of surprise on his face which seemed quite genuine. If you think that, I am well out of it. I was afraid when I woke that you might court-martial me. Court-martial you? What for? I asked, surprised in my turn. For going to sleep on duty, sir. And the fact is, I was worn out in the attack on the Silent Tower last night, and when you had your interview with the pirate, all good pirates forgive me for the blasphemy, amen, and I knew that everything was going smoothly, I went into the wheelhouse and took forty winks. He said all this without moving so much as an eyelid, from which I gathered that he wished absolute silence to be observed on my part. Whilst I was revolving this in my mind, he went on. Touching that request, sir, when I have left you and the Voivode, and the Voivodin, of course, at Visarion, together with such others as you may choose to bring there with you, may I bring the yacht back here for a spell? I rather think that there is a good deal of cleaning up to be done, and the crew of the lady with myself are the men to do it. We shall be back by nightfall at the creek. Do as you think best, Admiral Rook, I said. Admiral? Yes, Admiral. At present, I can only say that tentatively, but by tomorrow, I am sure the National Council will have confirmed it. I am afraid, old friend, that your squadron will be only your flagship for the present, but later we may do better. So long as I am admiral, your honor, I shall have no other flagship than the lady. I am not a young man, but young or old, my pennon shall float over no other deck. Now, 
One other favor, Mr. St. Ledger. It is a corollary of the first, so I do not hesitate to ask. May I appoint Lieutenant Desmond, my present first officer, to the command of the battleship? Of course, he will at first only command the prize crew, but in such case he will fairly expect the confirmation of his rank later. I had better perhaps tell you, sir, that he is a very capable seaman, learned in all the sciences that pertain to a battleship, and bred in the first navy in the world. By all means, Admiral, your nomination shall, I think I may promise you, be confirmed. Not another word we spoke. I returned with him in his boat to the lady, which was brought to the dock wall, where we were received with tumultuous cheering. I hurried off to my wife and the voivode. Rook, calling Desmond to him, went on the bridge of the lady, which turned and went out at terrific speed to the battleship, which was already drifting up northward on the tide. From the report of Christophorus, scribe of the National Council of the Land of the Blue Mountains, July 8, 1907. The meeting of the National Council, July 6th, was but a continuation of that held before the rescue of the Voivoden Vissarion, the members of the council having been, during the intervening night, housed in the castle of Vesaria. When, in the early morning, they met, all were jubilant, for late at night the fire signal had flamed up from Ilsen with the glad news that the voivode Peter Vesarion was safe, having been rescued with great daring on an aeroplane by his daughter and the Gospital Rupert, as the people call him, Mr. Rupert St. Ledger, as he is in his British name and degree. Whilst the consul was sitting, word came that a great peril to the town of Ilsen had been averted. A war vessel, acknowledging no nationality, and therefore to be deemed a pirate, had threatened to bombard the town, but just before the time fixed for the fulfillment of her threat, she was shaken to such an extent by some subaqueous means, that though she herself was seemingly uninjured, nothing was left alive on board. Thus the Lord preserves his own. The consideration of this, as well as the other incident, was postponed until the coming of the Voivode and the Gospodar Rupert, together with others who were already on their way hither. The same, later in the same day. The council resumed its sitting at four o'clock. The Voivode, Peter Vesarian, and the Voivode and Tuta had arrived with the Gospodar Rupert, as the mountaineers call him, Mr. Rupert St. Ledger, on the armored yacht he calls the Lady. The National Council showed great pleasure when the voivode entered the hall in which the council met. He seemed much gratified by the reception given to him. Mr. Rupertson Ledger, by the express desire of the council, was asked to be present at the meeting. He took a seat at the bottom of the hall and seemed to prefer to remain there, though asked by the president of the council to sit at the top of the table with himself and the voivode. When the formalities of such councils had been completed, the voivode handed to the president a memorandum of his report on his secret mission to foreign courts on behalf of the National Council. He then explained at length, for the benefit of the various members of the council, the broad results of his mission. The result was, he said, absolutely satisfactory. Everywhere he had been received with distinguished courtesy and given a sympathetic hearing. Several of the powers consulted had made delay in giving final answers, but such, he explained, were necessarily due to new considerations arising from the international complications which were universally dealt with throughout the world as the Balkan crisis. 
In time, however, the voivode went on, these matters became so far declared as to allow the waiting powers to form definite judgment, which, of course, they did not declare to him as to their own ultimate action. The final result, if at this initial stage such tentative setting forth of their own attitude in each case can be so named, was that he returned full of hope, founded, he might say, upon a justifiable personal belief, that the great powers throughout the world, north, south, east, and west, were in thorough sympathy with the land of the Blue Mountains in its aspirations for the continuance of its freedom. I also am honored, he continued, to bring to you, the great council of the nation, the assurance of protection against unworthy aggression on the part of neighboring nations of present greater strength. Whilst he was speaking, the Gospodar Rupert was writing a few words on a strip of paper which he sent up to the president. When the voivode had finished speaking, there was a prolonged silence. The president rose, and in a hush said that the council would like to hear Mr. Rupert St. Ledger, who had a communication to make regarding certain recent events. Mr. Rupert St. Ledger rose and reported how since he had been entrusted by the council with the rescue of the voivode Peter Vasarian, he had, by aid of the voivoden, effected the escape of the voivode from the silent tower. Also, that following this happy event, the mountaineers, who had made a great cordon round the tower so soon as it was known that the voivode had been imprisoned within it, had stormed it in the night. As a determined resistance was offered by the marauders, who had used it as a place of refuge, none of these escaped. He then went on to tell how he sought interview with the captain of the strange warship, which, without flying any flag, invaded our waters. He asked the president to call on me to read the report of that meeting. This, in obedience to his direction, I did. The acquiescent murmuring of the council showed how thoroughly they endorsed Mr. St. Ledger's words and acts. When I resumed my seat, Mr. St. Ledger described how, just before the time fixed by the pirate captain, so he designated him, as did every speaker thereafter, the warship met with some undersea accident which had a destructive effect on all on board her. Then he added certain words which I give verbatim, as I am sure that others will sometime wish to remember them in their exactness. By the way, President and Lords of the Council, I trust I may ask you to confirm Captain Rook of the armoured yacht, the Lady, to be Admiral of the Squadron of the Land of the Blue Mountains, and also Captain, tentatively, Desmond, late First Lieutenant of the Lady, to the command of the second warship of our fleet, the as-yet-unnamed vessel whose former captain threatened to bombard Ilsen. My lords, Admiral Rook has done great service to the land of the Blue Mountains, and deserves well at your hands. You will have in him, I am sure, a great official, one who will, till his last breath, give you good and loyal service. When he had sat down, the President put to the Council the two resolutions, which were passed by acclamation. Admiral Rook was given the command of the Navy, and Captain Desmond confirmed in his appointment to the captaincy of the new ship, which was by a further resolution named the Gospodar Rupert. In thanking the Council for acceding to his request, and for the great honor done him in the naming of the ship, Mr. St. Ledger said, May I ask that the armored yacht, the Lady, be accepted by you, the National Council, on behalf of the nation, as a gift 
on behalf of the cause of freedom from the Voivodin tutor. In response to the mighty cheer of the council with which the splendid gift was accepted, the Gospodar Rupert, Mr. St. Ledger, bowed and went quietly out of the room. As no agenda of the meeting had been prepared, there was, for a time, not silence, but much individual conversation. In the midst of it, the voivode rose up, whereupon there was a strict silence. All listened with an intensity of eagerness whilst he spoke. President and lords of the council, Archbishop and Vladika, I should but ill show my respect did I hesitate to tell you at this the first opportunity I have had of certain matters personal primarily to myself, but which in the progress of recent events have come to impinge on the affairs of the nation. Until I have done so, I shall not feel that I have done a duty, long due to you and your predecessors in office, and which I hope you will allow me to say that I have only kept back for purposes of statecraft. May I ask that you will come back with me in memory to the year 1890, when our struggle against Ottoman aggression, later on so successfully brought to a close, was begun. We were then in a desperate condition. Our finances had run so low that we could not purchase even the bread which we required. Nay, more, we could not procure through the national exchequer what we wanted more than bread, arms of modern effectiveness, for men may endure conquer, and yet fight well, as the glorious past of our country has proved again and again and again. But when our foes are better armed than we are, the penalty is dreadful to a nation small as our own is in number, no matter how brave their hearts. In this strait I myself had to secretly raise a sufficient sum of money to procure the weapons we needed. To this end, I sought the assistance of a great merchant prince, to whom our nation, as well as myself, was known. He met me in the same generous spirit which he had shown to the other struggling nationalities throughout a long and honorable career. When I pledged to him as security my own estates, he wished to tear up the bond, and only under pressure would he meet my wishes in this respect. Lords of the Council, it was his money thus generously advanced which procured for us the arms with which we hewed out our freedom. Not long ago that noble merchant, and here I trust you will pardon me that I am so moved as to perhaps appear to suffer in want of respect to this great council, this noble merchant passed to his account, leaving to a near kinsman of his own the royal fortune which he had amassed, only a few hours ago that worthy kinsman of the benefactor of our nation made it known to me that in his last will he had bequeathed to me, by secret trust, the whole of those estates which long ago I had forfeited by effluxion of time, inasmuch as I had been unable to fulfill the terms of my voluntary bond. It grieves me to think that I have had to keep you so long in ignorance of the good thought and wishes and acts of this great man but it was by his wise counsel, fortified by my own judgment, that I was silent. For, indeed, I feared, as he did, lest in our troublous times some doubting spirit without our boundaries, or even within it, might mistrust the honesty of my purposes for public good, because I was no longer one whose whole fortune was invested within our confines. 
This prince merchant, the great English Roger Melton, let his name be forever graven on the hearts of our people, kept silent during his own life, and enjoyed on others to come after him to keep secret from the men of the Blue Mountains, that secret loan made to me on their behalf, lest in their eyes I, who had striven to be their friend and helper, should suffer wrong repute. But happily he has left me free to clear myself in your eyes. Moreover, by arranging to have, under certain contingencies which have come to pass, the estates which were originally my own re-transferred to me, I have no longer the honor of having given what I could to the national cause. All such now belongs to him, for it was his money, and his only, which purchased our national armament. His worthy kinsman you already know, for he has not only been amongst you for many months, but has already done you good service in his own person. He it was who, as a mighty warrior, answered the summons of the Vladika when misfortune came upon my house in the capture by enemies of my dear daughter, the Voivodin Tuta, whom you hold in your hearts, who, with a chosen band of our brothers, pursued the marauders, and himself, by a deed of daring and prowess, of which poets shall hereafter sing, saved her when hope itself seemed to be dead from their ruthless hands and brought her back to us, who administered condign punishment to the miscreants who had dared to so wrong her. He it was who later took me, your servant, out of the prison wherein another band of Turkish miscreants held me captive, rescued me with help of my dear daughter, whom he had already freed, whilst I had on my person the documents of international secrecy of which I have already advised you, rescued me whilst I had been as yet unsubjected to the indignity of search. Beyond this you know now that of which I was in partial ignorance, how he had, through the skill and devotion of your new admiral, wrought destruction on a hecatomb of your malignant foes. You who have received for the nation the splendid gift of the little warship, which already represents a new era in naval armament, can understand the great soul generosity of the man who has restored the vast possessions of my house. On our way hither from Ilsen, Rupert St. Ledger made known to me the terms of the trust of his noble uncle, Roger Melton, and, believe me, that he did so generously, with a joy that transcended my own, restored to the last male of the Vissarian race the whole inheritance of a noble line. And now, my lords of the council, I come to another matter in which I find myself in something of a difficulty. For I am aware that in certain ways you actually know more of it than even I myself do. It is regarding the marriage of my daughter to Rupert St. Ledger. It is known to me that the matter having been brought before you by the Archbishop, who, as guardian of my daughter during my absence on the service of the nation, wished to obtain your sanction, as till my return they held her safety and trust. This was so, not from any merit of mine, but because she in her own person had undertaken for the service of our nation a task of almost incredible difficulty. My lords, were she the child of another father, I should extol to the skies her bravery, her self-devotion, her loyalty to the land she loves. Why, then, should I hesitate to speak of her deeds in fitting terms, since it is my duty, my glory, 
to hold them in higher honour than can any in this land. I shall not shame her, or even myself, to be silent when such a duty urges me to speak, as voivode, as trusted envoy of our nation, as father. Ages hence, loyal men and women of our land of the Blue Mountains will sing her deeds in song and tell them in story. Her name, Tuta, already sacred in these regions, where it was held by a great queen and honoured by all men, will hereafter be held as a symbol and type of woman's devotion. O oh, my lords, we pass along the path of life, the best of us but a little time marching in the sunlight between gloom and gloom, and it is during that march that we must be judged for the future. This brave woman has won knightly spurs as well as any paladin of old. So it is meet that ere she might mate with one worthy of her, you who hold in your hands the safety and honour of the state should give your approval. To you was it given to sit in judgment on the worth of this gallant Englisher, now my son. You judged him then before you had seen his valour, his strength and skill exercised on behalf of a national cause. You judged wisely, O oh my brothers, and out of a grateful heart I thank you, one and all, for it. Well has he justified your trust by his later acts, when, in obedience to the summons of the Vladika, he put the nation in a blaze and ranged our boundaries with a ring of steel, he did so unknowing that what was dearest to him in the world was at stake. He saved my daughter's honor and happiness, and won her safety, by an act of valor that outvies any told in history. He took my daughter with him to bring me out from the silent tower on the wings of the air, when earth had for me no possibility of freedom. I, that had even then in my possession the documents involving other nations which the Soldan would fain have purchased with the half of his empire. Henceforth, to me, lords of the council, this brave man must ever be as a son of my heart, and I trust that in his name grandsons of my own may keep in bright honour the name which in glorious days of old my fathers made illustrious. Did I know how adequately to thank you for your interest in my child, I would yield up to you my very soul in thanks. The speech of the voivode was received with the honour of the Blue Mountains, the drawing and raising of hand jars. From Rupert's Journal July 14th, 1907. For nearly a week we waited for some message from Constantinople, fully expecting either a declaration of war or else some inquiry so couched as to make war an inevitable result. The National Council remained on at Vissarion as the guests of the Voivode, to whom, in accordance with my uncle's will, I had prepared to retransfer all his estates. He was, by the way, unwilling at first to accept and it was only when I showed him Uncle Roger's letter and made him read the deed of transfer prepared in anticipation by Mr. Trent that he allowed me to persuade him. Finally, he said, As you, my good friends, have so arranged, I must accept, be it only an honor to the wishes of the dead. But remember, I only do so but for the present, reserving to myself the freedom to withdraw later if I so desire. But Constantinople was silent. The whole nefarious scheme was one of the put-up jobs which are a part of the dirty work of a certain order of statecraft 
to be accepted if successful, to be denied in case of failure. The matter stood thus. Turkey had thrown the dice and lost. Her men were dead. Her ship was forfeit. It was only some ten days after the warship was left derelict with every living thing, that is, everything that had been living, with its neck broken, as York informed me when he brought the ship down the creek and housed it in the dock behind the armored gates, that we saw an item in the Roma copied from the Constantinople Journal of July 9th. Loss of an Ottoman ironclad with all hands. News has been received at Constantinople of the total loss with all hands of one of the newest and finest warships in the Turkish fleet, the Mahmoud, Captain Ali Ali, which foundered in a storm on the night of July 5th, some distance off Cabrera in the Balearic Isles. There were no survivors, and no wreckage was discovered by the ships which went in relief, the Pera and the Mustafa, or reported from anywhere along the shores of the islands of which exhausted search was made. The Mahmoud was double manned, as she carried a full extra crew sent on an educational cruise on the most perfectly scientifically equipped warship on service in the Mediterranean waters. When the voivode and I talked over the matter, he said, After all, Turkey is a shrewd power. She certainly seems to know when she is beaten, and does not intend to make a bad thing seem worse in the eyes of the world. Well, there's a bad wind that blows good to nobody. As the Mahmoud was lost off the Balearics, it cannot have been her that put the marauders on shore and trained her big guns on Ilse. We take it, therefore, that the latter must have been a pirate, and as we have taken her derelict in our waters, she is now ours, in all ways. <laughs> Anyhow, she is ours, and is the first ship of her class in the navy of the Blue Mountains. I am inclined to think that even if she was, or is still, a Turkish ship, Admiral Rook would not be inclined to let her go. As for Captain Desmond, I think he would go straight out of his mind if such a thing were to be even suggested to him. It will be a pity if we have any more trouble, for life here is very happy with us all now. The Voivode is, I think, like a man in a dream. Duta is ideally happy, and the real affection which sprang up between them when she and Aunt Janet met is a joy to think of. I had posted Tuta about her, so that when they should meet, my wife might not by any inadvertence receive or cause any pain. But the moment Tuta saw her, she ran straight over to her and lifted her in her strong young arms, and raising her up as one would lift a child, kissed her. Then, when she had put her sitting in the chair from which she had arisen when we entered the room, she knelt down before her, and put her face down in her lap. Aunt Janet's face was a study. I myself could hardly say whether at the first moment surprise or joy predominated, but there could be no doubt about it the instant after. She seemed to beam with happiness. When Duta knelt to her, she could only say, My dear, my dear, I am glad. Rupert's wife, you and I must love each other very much. Seeing that they were laughing and crying in each other's arms, I thought it best to come away and leave them alone, and I didn't feel a bit lonely either when I was out of sight of them. I knew that where those two dear women were, there was a place for my own heart. When I came back, 
Tutor was sitting on Janet's knee. It seemed rather stupendous for the old lady, for Tutor is such a splendid creature that even when she sits on my own knee, and I catch a glimpse of us in some mirror, I cannot but notice what a nobly built girl she is. My wife was jumping up as soon as I was seen, but Aunt Janet held her tight to her and said, Don't stir, dear. It is such happiness to me to have you there. Rupert has always been my little boy, and in spite of all his being such a giant, he is so still, and so you that he loves must be my little girl, in spite of all your beauty and your strength, and sit on my knee, till you can place there a little one that shall be dear to us all, and that shall let me feel my youth again. When first I saw you I was surprised, for somehow, though I had never seen you, nor even heard of you. I seem to know your face. Sit where you are, dear. It's only Rupert, and we both love him. Tutor looked at me, flushing rosily. But she sat quiet and drew the old lady's white head on her young breast. Janet McKelvey's Notes July 8th, 1907 I used to think that whenever Rupert should get married, or start on the way to it by getting engaged, I would meet his future wife with something of the same affection that I have always had for himself. But I know now that what was really in my mind was jealousy, and that I was really fighting against my own instincts, and pretending to myself that I was not jealous. Had I ever had the faintest idea that she would be anything the least like Tuta? That sort of feeling should never have had even a foothold. No wonder my dear boy is in love with her. For truth to tell, I am in love with her myself. I don't think I ever met a creature, a woman creature, of course, I mean, with so many splendid qualities. I almost fear to say it, lest it should seem to myself wrong. But I think she is as good as a woman, as Rupert is as a man. And what more than that can I say? I thought I loved her and trusted her and knew her all I could until this morning. I was in my own room, as it is still called, for though Rupert tells me in confidence that under his uncle's will the whole estate of Vissarion, castle and all, really belongs to the voivode, and though the voivode has been persuaded to accept the position, he, the voivode, will not allow anything to be changed. He will not even hear a word of my going or changing my room, or anything. And Rupert backs him up in it, and Tudor too. So what am I to do but let the deer have their way? Well, this morning, when Rupert was with the voivode at a meeting of the National Council in the Great Hall, Tudor came to me, and after closing the door and bolting it, which surprised me a little, came and knelt down beside me and put her face in my lap. I stroked her beautiful black hair and said, What is it, Tudor darling? Is there any trouble? And why did you bolt the door? Has anything happened to Rupert? When she looked up, I saw that her beautiful black eyes, with the stars in them, were overflowing with tears not yet shed. But she smiled through them, and the tears did not fall. When I saw her smile, my heart was eased, and I said without thinking, Thank God, darling, Rupert is all right. I thank God too, dear Aunt Janet, she said softly, 
and I took her in my arms and laid her head on my breast. Go on, dear, I said. Tell me what it is that troubles you. This time I saw the tears drop as she lowered her head and hid her face from me. I am afraid I have deceived you, Aunt Janet, and that you will not, cannot forgive me. Lord, save you, child, I said. There is nothing that you could do that I could not and would not forgive. Not that you would ever do anything base, for that is the only thing that is hard to forgive. Tell me now what troubles you. She looked up in my eyes fearlessly, this time with only the signs of tears that had been, and said proudly, Nothing base, Aunt Janet. My father's daughter would not willingly be base. I do not think she could. Moreover, had I ever done anything base, I should not be here, for, for I should never have been Rupert's wife. Then what is it? Tell your old Aunt Janet, dearie. She answered me with another question. Aunt Janet, do you know who I am and how I first met Rupert? You are the Voivod and Duke of Vissarion, the doctor of the Voivod. Or rather, you were. You are now Mrs. Rupert St. Ledger, for he is still an Englishman and a good subject of our noble king. Yes, Aunt Janet, she said. I am that, and proud to be it, prouder than I would be were I my namesake, who was queen in the old days. But how and where did I see Rupert first? I did not know and frankly told her so. So she answered a question herself. I saw him first in his own room at night. I knew in my heart that in whatever she did had been nothing wrong. So I sat silent, waiting for her to go on. I was in danger and in deadly fear. I was afraid I might die. Not that I fear death, and I wanted help and warmth. I was not dressed as I am now. On the instant it came to me how I knew her face, even the first time I had seen it. I wished to help her out over the embarrassing part of her confidence. So I said, Dearie, I think I know. Tell me, child, will you put on the frock, the dress, the costume you wore that night and let me see you in it? It is not mere idle curiosity, my child, but something far, far above such idle folly. Wait for me a minute, Aunt Janet, she said, as she rose up. I shall not be long. Then she left the room. In a very few minutes she was back. Her appearance might have frightened some people, for she was clad only in a shroud. Her feet were bare, and she walked across the room with the gait of an empress, and stood before me, their eyes modestly cast doom. But when presently she looked up and caught my eyes, a smile rippled over her face. She threw herself once more before me on her knees and embraced me as she said, I was afraid I might frighten you, dear. I knew I could truthfully reassure her as to that, so I proceeded to do so. Do not worry yourself, my dear. I am not by nature timid. I come of a fighting stock, which has sent out heroes, and I belong to a family wherein is the gift of second sight. Why should we fear? We know. Moreover, I saw you in that dress before. Duta 
I saw you and Rupert married. This time she herself it was that seemed disconcerted. Saw us married? How on earth did you manage to be there? I was not there. My seeing was long before. Tell me, dear, what day, or rather what night, was it that you first saw Rupert? She answered sadly, I do not know. Alas, I lost count of the days as I lay in the tomb in that dreary crypt. Was your, your clothing wet that night? I asked. Yes, I had to leave the crypt, for a great flood was out and the church was flooded. I had to seek help, warmth, for I feared I might die. Oh, I was not, as I have told you, afraid of death, but I had undertaken a terrible task to which I had pledged myself. It was for my father's sake, and the sake of the land, and I felt that it was a part of my duty to live. And so I lived on, when death would have been a relief. It was to tell you all about this that I came to your room today. But how did you see me, us, married? Ah, my child, I answered, that was before the marriage took place. The morn after the night that you came in the wet, when, having been troubled and uncanny dreaming, I came to see if Rupert was arrived, I lost remembrance of my dreaming, for the floor was all wet, and that took off my attention. But later, the morn after Rupert used his fire in his room for the first time, I told him what I had dreamt. For, Lassie, my dear, I saw ye as bride at that wedding in fine lace or your shrewd, and orange flowers and others in your black hair, and I saw the stars in your body e'en, the e'en I love. But, oh, my dear, when I saw the shrewd, and kent what it might mean, I expected to see the worms crawl round your feet. But do ye ask your man to tell you what I tell him that morning? will interest you to know how the hair to men can learn by dreams. Has he ever told ye aught of this? No, dear, she said simply. I think that perhaps he was afraid that one or other of us, if not both, might be upset by it if he did. You see, he did not tell you anything at all of our meeting, though I am sure that he will be glad when he knows that we both know all about it and have told each other everything. That was very sweet of her, and very thoughtful in all ways, so I said that which I thought would please her best, that is, the truth. Ah, lassie, that is what a wife should be, what a wife should do. Rupert is blessed and happy to have his heart in your keeping. I knew from the added warmth of her kiss what I had said had pleased her. End of part twelve. Recording by Thomas Copeland.